Welcome to Retina Health for Life from the President's Corner, brought to you by the American Society of Retina Specialists. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Murray, coming to you from Miami. On each episode, we'll bring you inspiring conversations about your sight and the special role the retina plays in making healthy vision possible. We'll hear from expert retina specialists, as well as directly from patients about living life to the fullest with retinal disease. Join us and learn how to safeguard your retina health for life. Welcome to the American Society of Retina Specialists, Retina Health for Life from the President's Corner. On this episode, we're going to talk about a condition called retinoblastoma, a cancer of the eye that affects children for which significant advances have been made in both the diagnosis and treatment, leading to better survival and vision outcomes for these young children. To discuss this condition, I'm happy to welcome to the show the world-renowned ocular oncologist, retina specialist, and my friend, Dr. Carol Shields, who is the director of the ocular oncology service at the Wills Eye Institute in Philadelphia. Welcome, Carol. Yeah, thank you, Tim. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm honored to be on this uh, interview. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. You're such an excellent speaker. So Carol, you are one of the truly leading research clinicians in ocular oncology, and your work over the last three decades has led to breakthroughs for people of all ages with cancer, especially those with the two most common cancers, retinoblastoma in children and ocular melanoma in adults. Can you tell our audience about the journey that led you to become a retina specialist and how you decided to specialize in eye cancer? Yeah, well, it's uh, not a direct route. It was a circuitous route. You know, uh, initially I wanted to go into dermatology and I talked to one of my brothers who was in ophthalmology and he said, don't do it. He said, ophthalmology holds a lot bigger promise and the imaging and the therapies are really outstanding. So I applied for ophthalmology and I remember the exact day that I got into ophthalmology. Um, it was a very exciting day. And I just went down to the library in the internship I was working in and just read everything I could read on ophthalmology, knowing that I didn't really understand much of it. Um, when I entered into residency at Wills, I realized that ophthalmology was a true art and I'm an artist. I've done a lot of paintings, oil paintings, watercolors, et cetera, during my pre-medical career. And I realized that ophthalmology is a visual recognition of disease. And I really like that. And I noticed that ocular oncology was even more so, retina and ocular oncology. And I was drawn to ocular oncology because my, uh, my friend at the time, Jerry Shields, who I was doing some research with, um, introduced me to some you know, new concepts in ocular oncology and I studied them and I wrote reports and then I realized I liked the challenge of ocular oncology. So this was a circuitous route through you know, dermatology, art, into ophthalmology and then loving the challenge of ocular oncology. And I'm very happy where I'm at. Um, I am challenged every day in our practice. There's not one day that goes by that I don't have to 
really think about what is best for this patient. And of course, I'm lucky to work with a team of doctors where we bounce ideas off on each other so that we hopefully will make the best decision for patients. You know, we're all blessed that you found your way to ophthalmology and that you and Dr. Jerry Shields really are two of the foremost experts in the world on this disease. So what I'd like to do, um, Dr. Shields, today is to have you explain to our patients and our families what retinoblastoma is and then what the treatments are and what the outlook is for these children going forward. So could you give us an overview of retinoblastoma? Sure, Dr. Murray. Um, if you asked me to give this talk in the 1980s when I entered the field, it would be totally different than the talk from today. So back in the 1980s, we would talk about therapies that were radiation-based and were could lead to other problems in patients. But nowadays we have much better therapy. So let me go back to your first question. What is retinoblastoma? Retinoblastoma, I think, is one of the scariest eye diseases. It occurs in babies. Parents notice that their child can't see or that their child has a white pupil. And the, the, the best thing about retinoblastoma is I love to reassure the family, don't worry, we have good therapies. Chances are we're going to be able to save your child. Chances are we are going to be able to cure the cancer in your child's eye or eyes. And chances are we will do this with chemotherapy. So right off the bat, for example, this week we saw a new baby with retinoblastoma. Right off the bat, I could reassure the family that, okay, this is a scary disease. You didn't want this to happen, but we have good treatments and we can cure this most likely with chemotherapy. So Carol, you mentioned that this affects children. Can you give us an idea of, of what the most common ages are and does it affect boys and girls the same? And what really causes retinoblastoma? Yeah, so if I dig down to the real crooks of retinoblastoma, it's related to a mutation in chromosome 13. And if you have the mutation just in that one eye, you only get retinoblastoma, one tumor in one eye. If you are born with a mutation in your blood and in every cell in your body, you're at risk for multiple tumors. So retinoblastoma is related to genetic mutation. Now, retinoblastoma tends to occur or manifest in young kids. The average age is anywhere from like one to three years of age. And these are kids who come in with painless loss of vision, but a child never tells their parent, I'm losing vision, mommy. The, it's usually the parent who looks and says, my gosh, my child has a white pupil or my child can't see. And most often it is the mother, grandmother, or father who picks up the abnormality in the eyes. I just wish, Dr. Murray, that you and I could post in every pediatrician's office a photograph of what a white pupil looks like. I think that would inform so many parents on what to look for if there's any concern for retinoblastoma. Yeah, I think really it, it, it is always, you know, 
sad that we don't get to these children as early as we would like to. And I think that's because of still a lack of good knowledge in our, in our families and maybe in our primary care providers that are taking care of these young children. So I feel really strongly that that's important. And actually, Carol, that's part of what this is about is sort of an educational journey for not just our patients and families, but maybe friends and other people that are interested in, in eye disease. We've had parents come in to see us who've said, oh, um, I noticed this funny pupil in my child. So I Googled, they went to Dr. Google, I Googled funny pupil kid and up pops retinoblastoma. And next thing we know, they're in our office. And they were correct. The child had retinoblastoma. Well, you and I both feel strongly that even if they don't have retinoblastoma, it's enough to drive them to have an appropriate ophthalmologic evaluation. Let, let a specialist in either pediatric ophthalmology or pediatric retina or an ocular oncology like you and I let us get our hands on looking at that child because even when it's not retinoblastoma, often those funny pupils are significant in other ways. Exactly, they could signify other things. They could signify retinal de detachment, cataract, infection in the eye, inflammation in the eye. So it's really important if a child has a funny looking pupil or even a funny looking eye that an ocular oncologist might take a look just to be sure there's no tumor in the eye. So it seems like you're saying, look at the pupil, look for a funny pupil or that white reflex that we call leukocoria. Look if those eyes may be turned or if there's an abnormal movement of the eye or if the eye looks sort of too large or too small. And also, Carol, you mentioned genetics. Does this condition run in families? Yes, it can run in families. It runs in families, especially if the child has multifocal tumors, that is more than one tumor, or if they have bilateral disease, then it's at risk to run in families. So if a child comes in to see us and they have multifocal or bilateral tumors, the first thing we do is we look at the parents to see if the parents carry the trait. And if they don't, that's great. But if they don't, we still do genetic testing because we know the child carries the trait and there's a chance that one of the parents might carry the trait and future children might have retinoblastoma. So there's a whole list of checkpoints that we do just to be sure we check everyone who might be involved for retinoblastoma. And, and Carol, you and I both this week saw new children with retinoblastoma. So for, for me, I, as a parent and you also as a parent, um, that in some ways is such a heartbreaking moment when we have to speak to the parents and the grandparents and the family. Do you have any insight in, in terms of how you like to share that information? Um, it seems that you're very positive and I think that's how I approach this too. Um, but how do you judge the response and, and what resources do we have for those families? Yeah. So whenever, whenever I do an examination on a baby with retinoblastoma, we always greet the family beforehand. And, you know, in a little playful way, we mark the forehead to be sure the family understands we're going to check both eyes. Then we go back and it's all business. We examine the child. We look for, I mean, very tiny little tumors or recurrences, tumors 
smaller than a millimeter. I mean, smaller than the, the size of a pencil point we look for and we look for seeds and we mark this all down on large drawings. And then we image with uh, cameras and we look for uh, sub millimeter seeding with uh, imaging called OCT. And then once we have this all done and we know what each eye looks like, we go out and with large drawings, we'll sit down with the family and we'll say, okay, the right eye shows this and the left eye shows this, and this is what we're gonna do with both eyes. My, the doctors who work with me always know that <clears throat> whenever I start a conversation with a family with retinoblastoma, I will always try to find something positive. This is a very stressful condition. I think in all of ophthalmology, I think the most stressful condition for somebody or a family to deal with is retinoblastoma. A, their child uh, has a cancer. B, their child might be blind. And C, their child might die from this cancer. So I try to start off with good news, like, well, there was no invasion and we're feeling comfortable that your child's not gonna die from this cancer and not gonna get spread from this cancer. And this is how we're gonna treat the right eye and the left eye. I always start with some little ounce or iota of good news. Thank God it's not metastatic or thank God the right eye is okay. All we have to deal with now is the left eye so that they feel a little bit of relief and a little bit like I want them to be feeling in control, like not out of control. We're in control. We have a plan. We have the doctors who can do, can, uh, uh, make this plan happen. We have intraarterial chemotherapy, whatever type of injections we need, and we will get this done so that they have full confidence in us. Right. I, I think that's so important. And, and even with that, you know, the, the, this is so hard on, on the parents and, and the siblings along with the child that's involved. You, you really um, focused on, on the sort of definitive evaluation of the child. So one of the things that's kind of unique to retinoblastoma and other pediatric diseases is you and I will see that patient in, in the clinic setting in the office awake, but then we will go to the operating room with the child asleep to do that really exhaustive exam to allow us to have the microscopic precision that we, we need. And one of the things I like the families to, to realize is how important those exams with anesthesia are. Many of our parents have been concerned about anesthesia for their children. And I know you and I feel that the anesthesia is critical to the care of the child. How do you discuss that with these families? In order to get a comprehensive evaluation of each eye, the child has to be completely asleep, sedated, and not moving. Because to you and me, a one millimeter or a half a millimeter increase in tumor size is relevant. It can't be ignored because the next time the child comes back, it might be three millimeters. And then two months later, it might be eight millimeters. So we can't ignore anything. So our examinations have to be performed with precision. And I, I really believe that this is among the most precise of all ophthalmology is ocular oncology. So most families don't question, you know, why must we come back in a month? Actually, they actually feel relieved. You know, 
just last week, I mean, tomorrow is my day that I do all my exams on babies for our retinoblastoma. But last week I explained to one family, you know, I think we can go three months. And the mom said, do you think we could just cut that back to two months? Because we just had a little bump in our course and I don't want to miss anything. And she, she understands it. She gets it every, until we're totally out of the woods, every month we have to check these babies. And eventually we get them out of the woods. Eventually they get to the point that they don't need EUAs. Most of our kids by about five or six years of age don't need EUAs. We see them in the office and they do beautifully in the office. So today I saw a little six-year-old girl. Gosh, we were every month on top of her when she was like three years old. Now she came to the office. She did a beautiful job. She's, she's beat it. She's won, she's beat retinoblastoma and won both eyes and her life. See, I, th I think those stories are, are so amazing. And for, for you and I, they're really fairly common stories. Can you take us through, you, you mentioned treatments and, and how they have evolved, but I think you and I started at a time when many people were enucleating or removing the eye with cancer. And I think you and I have had a very strong focus on trying to make sure that we can treat these children, cure the cancer as the number one priority. These children have to live, but we've also focused on trying to keep not only their eye, but the vision in the eye. So could you take us a little bit through that evolution? Sure. So when we're balancing you know, treatment for retinoblastoma, we're balancing really uh, three things. Number one, the patient's life. Number two, the patient's eye. And then number three, vision. But I really, I tell families, let's not talk about vision until we get everything under control. Then we can focus on vision. So our first focus is saving the child's life. And uh, Tim, back when you and I were you know, new into practice in the 1980s, um, the treatments were either remove the eye or treat the eye with radiation, but that has so much evolved over the years. And now our treatments, and we're very quite successful, our treatments are mostly chemotherapy, whether it be chemotherapy by vein, which is intravenous chemotherapy, or chemotherapy by artery, which is intraarterial chemotherapy, or chemotherapy into the eye, which is intravitreous chemotherapy, and sometimes even into the front of the eye, called intraaqueous chemotherapy. And sometimes if chemotherapy doesn't work, we will use a radiation device. And in many of these cases, we have other little minor treatments like thermotherapy and cryotherapy. So most of retinoblastoma treatment nowadays is chemotherapy. It's very creative in very different ways of using chemotherapy. I have to say, and we've, we've looked at our experience with intravenous chemotherapy and intraarterial chemotherapy recently. And success is actually quite high with chemotherapy. So gone are the days that we give radiation and we worry about dry eye, loss of lashes, cataract, loss of vision from retinopathy, and then second cancers. So we're, we've kind of removed all of those complications by not doing radiation. Now with chemotherapy, basically the main complications are the blood counts drop after we give the chemotherapy, but they usually recover. 
And with intraarterial chemotherapy, occasionally we'll see the blood vessels to the eye become very thin, but if we can control the tumor in the eye, we can handle the thin blood vessels. So there's a lot that we think of. I mean, we are just, we're like jugglers. We're juggling everything all the time um, with our biggest goal to save life and save eye and the remote goal to save vision. Yeah, I think that you've really been a proponent of that over the last several decades. And I think that this is truly one of the best success stories of cancer therapy mm -hmm. across the spectrum of disease. So, you know, we, when this disease was first recognized, virtually every child died. And, and now I think at most of our top centers, we almost expect every child to live. Now you can never have mm -hmm. always with a cancer. And, and we know that maybe it's 99% and at some institutions, maybe 95% survival, but what a switch to go from every child dying to almost expecting every child to live and to live well. So I think you've really been with Jerry um, sort of the, the driver in this field for changes that have really enabled children to, to live healthy lives with this cancer. So I'm really always happy to talk with you. And what amazes me is that as long as I have known you, you never seem to slow down or stop. So how about a little bit of what you think the future may hold for, for retinoblastoma and for these children and their families? One thing I would have to underscore, this was a, whether we admit it or not, this success story with retinoblastoma was a collaboration of Miami, New York, Los Angeles, Toronto, Philadelphia, London, Tokyo, and many other centers around the world because what we all did, and I agree with you, this is the biggest success story in all of cancer. And in fact, retinoblastoma is the number one most successfully treated pediatric cancer, period. More successful than leukemia, neuroblastoma, and every other cancer in kids. Retinoblastoma is the number one most successful. Now, I'm not saying that everyone survives. In fact, Jasmine Francis from Sloan Kettering just reported last year that even if you enucleate the eye, there's still a 4% risk that the child could die from retinoblastoma or get metastatic disease. So we still need to follow this as a cancer, but we have gone from 0% survival to 96% survival in a hundred years. That's pretty, pretty awesome. So what's the future hold? Well, I think for right now, we're pretty set with our chemotherapy regimens, but I'm waiting, I'm waiting for gene therapy. I mean, I think retinoblastoma is the perfect cancer for some form of gene therapy. We know for most kids, we know for like 95% of cases, it's gonna be on chromosome 13. If we can insert the missing or the malformed part of chromosome 13 using gene therapy, I mean, we could totally reverse uh, what has happened in the eye. It's, it's been an amazing ride. And I bet, Tim, you would say, even going back to the early days in 1994, 1995, for the doctors, it was a bit scary. 
you know, we were given chemotherapy, intravenous chemotherapy for children with retinoblastoma, and we never knew what we were going to see in month two. It was a little bit scary, but we learned that it was effective. And then we learned that intraarterial chemotherapy was very effective and intravitreous chemotherapy, very effective. So I think it's been fortuitous that we've been kind of on this wave, this you know, surge of new therapies, and we have access to all of them um, that can really truly benefit our patients. I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's such an amazing journey. And you and I have really been on that journey together. And mm -hmm. it's, it's been really um, impressive to me that we've talked about clinical trials and clinical trials research, but this is really the epitome of what they call an orphan disease or a rare cancer. It happens so rarely that, that we've had to collaborate clinically to make the kind of decisions that usually get made in clinical trials. And I'm amazed at how far and how fast we've come because of having excellent clinicians like you in the field. So Carol, a joy to talk with you. Um, we could talk for hours and hours. I know that's really not hard for you and I to do, but I really wanna thank you for joining us. I wanna thank you for the families and the children that you've treated over the decades. And I'm really excited as you are to see where that future will take us. So Dr. Carol Shields from Will's Eye Institute, Ocular Oncology Director, thank you. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you on behalf of the American Society of Retina Specialists. Thanks for tuning in to Retina Health for Life from the President's Corner. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. For even more information about safeguarding your vision for a lifetime, visit asrs.org patients and follow ASRS on both Facebook and Twitter. Retina Health for Life is made possible in part through generous support from the Foundation of the American Society of Retina Specialists, Allergan, Genentech, Novartis, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. See you soon.